Hey, good morning, everyone. Good morning, folks across the street and everybody joining us online. Hey, let's give a little bit more love to our worshiping arts pastor. Four years in a row, four years in a row, been our, our uh, church, our church band's been the house band down Circle of Lights, and that's all because of you. Good job. We appreciate you. You're the man until tomorrow, and then I'll be the man again. No, we really appreciate Brian. You got a Bible? I want you to grab it and go with me to the Gospel of Luke and the first chapter. And while you're turning there, I want to give a shout out to our Center Grove Trojans for winning the Class 6A state championship this last night at Lucas Oil Stadium. We're proud of all of our kids here at church, and we got kids from all different school districts. But I think about these boys, uh, and uh, so many of them in our church here, and I've so I've seen them grow up over the past 14 years. So proud of their parents. We've got coaches for the Center Grove football team that are part of our church family. So congratulations to Coach Moore and all his staff and all of our kids. And that's a great, great lifelong memory you guys will have for a long time. We're proud of you. Very proud of you. Well, I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Uh, I, uh, I know I did. And Thanksgiving is that weekend, you know, that for a lot of people really signals the beginning of the Christmas season, which means that Thanksgiving is that weekend for a lot of people where the madness begins, and for the next four weeks, you know, life can get out of control. There's so much to do. There's decorating and baking and shopping and sending out Christmas cards, and there's, there's school programs, and there's, there's special services at church, and there's parties, and there's family celebrations and office issues, and you can go on and on and on, and it can be crazy these next four weeks. And so on this kind of in-between weekend, you know, the weekend after Thanksgiving is, is, is kind of just that. It's kind of an in-between weekend. But on this in-between weekend, what I want to do is I want to try to bring a little sanity to the Christmas season by using some very familiar passages of Scripture in Luke to help, I hope, give us the right perspective on Christmas moving forward. That's why I'm calling this message a Christmas to-do list. We need some perspective about the holiday. So before we look at the passage or we do anything else, let's just bow and ask for God's blessing on that. Father in heaven, thanks for a chance to open up our Bibles this morning. What a great time of, of, of worship and music. What a, what a great song that was that we sang about just bowing down, just bowing low before you. That's what we need to do every day of our lives. Thank you for that. And now, as we open up our Bibles together, and we're going to read familiar passages of Scripture, I pray that your Spirit, who Jesus himself called the Spirit of truth, would guide us into truth today with regard to where we are in our hearts and our minds in this Christmas season. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen, amen. amen. Well, if you're like me, you have heard or read the story, the Christmas story from Luke chapter 2 so many times that you could probably recite at least most of it from memory. I can't even imagine how many times I have heard or read the familiar story of Jesus' birth in Luke chapter 2 in the first 20 verses. I'm sure you're just like our family every year at Christmas. On Christmas morning, before we do anything else, we open up our Bibles together and we read that passage of Scripture. It tells the story of the birth of Jesus. But sometimes, in our hurry to get to the story of Jesus' birth, we forget, or maybe we miss out altogether on the truth, that Luke writes about two births when he begins to tell us the story of Jesus. Not just the story of Jesus' birth, but also the birth of John, who we know as John the Baptist. 
And we need to remember that that's not just a coincidence, that it falls into our Bibles that way. We need to remember that the Bible was written by human men under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so there's a purpose for Luke laying these two stories side by side, which means the question we ask this morning is why? Why do we find them together? I think we can answer that in a lot of different ways. The most obvious is history, but I think one of the reasons also is so that we can learn how we need to prepare in our hearts and our minds for Christmas. So if you've got your Bibles open to Luke chapter 1, I want to invite you, like I always do, to stand with me in reverence and respect for God's Word, and let's make the public reading of Scripture a part of our service today, like always. And let me just tell you, it'll be a little bit longer passage that we normally read. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start in Luke chapter 1 and verse 57. I'm going to read through verse 66, and then I'm going to skip over, and I'm going to go across the page to Luke chapter 2, and we're going to read the Christmas story. But we're going to begin in Luke 1:57. Follow along. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he is to be called John. They said to her, There's no one among your relatives who has that name. And then they made signs to the father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, His name is John. Immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak, praising God. The neighbors were all filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. Now we go to Luke chapter 2 and verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn, for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. And then verse 21, on the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given before he had been conceived. All right. May God bless the reading of his words. You can be seated this morning. Let's talk for a moment about 
the ways in which these two births are different, I wrote down three things in my notes when I thought about how they were different. Number one, they were different in location. The first birth took place at home, while the other birth took place far away from home. Zechariah and Elizabeth, as we're told, lived in the hill country of Judea, and that's where their son was born. That's how it was supposed to happen in those days. But that's not the way it was for Joseph and Mary. They lived in Nazareth. They thought their son would be born in Nazareth, but you know the story. A a, a decree for a census was issued. They had to travel to their home to register, and since David was from, or excuse me, uh, Joseph was from the line of David, they had to travel to Bethlehem. He didn't want to leave Mary home alone, and So they went to Bethlehem together. It was a difficult journey for them because of her condition. They got there. The place was full. There was no room in an inn, so they ended up being in a a stable that might even have been a cave, and that's where Jesus was born. Very different in location. I wrote down number two. They were different in celebration. One of the best things about bringing a new child into the world is getting to share it with your family and friends. And that's the way it happened for John when he was born to Elizabeth. Zachariah and Elizabeth had their home filled with family and friends. That's the way it is when babies are born. That's the way it was when both of my kids were born, and that's the way it was when my grandkids were born. I'm sure you say the same thing. It's one of the best parts. You get to share it with your family and friends. It's a, it's a fun and exciting time. That didn't happen that way for Joseph and Mary. There was no one there except a handful of animals. There were the shepherds. You know that story. We just read it. They were minding their own business one night. An angel showed up and made this announcement that the Savior had been born, and they had a choir of angels, and the glory of the Lord was shining around them, and they, I love this part. As soon as it was over, they said, well, let's just go check it out for ourselves, and they went right straight to Bethlehem and found the baby Jesus, but that's it. Mary and Joseph shared their joy with some animals and a handful of shepherds, and I seriously doubt they sent out a baby invitation that said, you won't believe who showed up for the birth. I wrote down number three that these births were different in announcement. You have to know a little bit about the Jewish culture to understand this. In the Jewish culture, and and according to the law, after a son was born, family and friends would gather at the home of the couple who had the baby to celebrate for eight straight nights leading up to the circumcision. Can you imagine that? Ladies, you know how you felt when you came home from the hospital after giving birth? Can you imagine entertaining company for eight straight nights? That would be brutal, wouldn't it? But that's what happened according to Jewish culture. And then according to the law, on the eighth day, the child, if it was a male child, was circumcised, and you declared the name of the child. Now, at the birth of John, this created a little bit of controversy. And here's why. According to custom, the firstborn son would always be named after the father. And so according to custom, tradition, then the son that Elizabeth gave birth to would have been named Zechariah. But we already saw in the story that His name was John. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. It it, it created some controversy for their family. Really wasn't that way, wasn't difficult like that at all for Mary and Joseph. Everyone knew that Joseph wasn't uh, Jesus' father. And so in our text, and this is why we read verse 21 of Luke chapter 2, we just read on the eighth day when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. And so right from the bat, these births, even though they lay side by side in the telling of the story of Jesus, have a lot of things about them that are different. But at the same time, when you put these births next to each other and you look at them in that context, I think they both teach us the same thing 
with regard to how we need to prepare our hearts for Christmas. And that's really the heart of this message. Again, I'm just calling this a Christmas to-do list. I got four things, four truths that I draw from these stories that I think would make a great to-do list for all of us for Christmas. So if you're taking notes, I want you to write down your insert this first thing. If you and I were to sit down and make a Christmas to-do list for 2015 that began right now on November the 29th and took us all the way to December 25th, the very first thing we need to put at the top of our list is this. We need to believe. Write that down in your insert. We need to believe. And we see this in both stories of both births, one in a negative way, one in a positive way. The negative way comes from Zechariah and the birth of John. We didn't have time to read his entire story. I would really encourage you at some time to, in, in today or before the weekend is over to go back and read all of Luke chapter 1. But Zechariah was a priest, and he and his wife Elizabeth were old. They were old. They were old. They were old. And he had a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to go into the most holy part of the temple and burn incense to the Lord. And while he was there, an angel showed up. Not just any angel, but the angel Gabriel showed up. And the angel Gabriel said, you and Elizabeth are going to have a son, and his name is going to be John. And initially, Zechariah did not respond with positive faith. And that upset the angel Gabriel, and so he told Zechariah, because of this, basically, you're not going to speak again until the day that the baby is born. This was Zechariah's exact response. In Luke chapter 1 and verse 18, after Gabriel's announcement about the birth of a son that was coming, Zechariah said, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. That was his response of doubt. We didn't read the entire story of Mary either because we didn't read the part of the story where the angel Gabriel also visited Mary to tell her that she was going to have a son. And both stories were unbelievable in a sense if you just based them on biology because Zachariah and Elizabeth were old. They were well past childbearing age. And Mary was a virgin. She had never been intimate physically with a man. And so she asked a question too. Her question was the obvious question. When Gabriel made that announcement, she said, how will this be since I am a virgin? But here's the deal. After Gabriel explained it to her, she said in verse 38, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Now, I want you to hang in here with me. Even though both Zechariah and Mary responded to Gabriel and his announcement about having a son with a question. There's a big difference between the two responses, and here's the big difference. Mary wanted understanding. That was behind her question. Zechariah wanted proof. That was behind his, and that's a big difference. Mary wanted understanding. Zechariah wanted proof, and when Mary got her understanding, she was good to go. She was ready to go. Now, I'm not, I don't want to be too hard on Zechariah this morning. I don't think it would be fair for any of us to be too hard on him because his question came from a logical place. His question came from, just as I mentioned earlier, biology. He and Elizabeth were old, and I'm sure that they had spent years and years praying and pleading with God for a child. The text tells us that his wife Elizabeth was barren, but I also am sure that they gave up that prayer a long time ago because that's what happens when it comes to God sometimes, when we pray for the same thing over and over and over again, year after year after year with no response, and we just get disappointment upon disappointment upon disappointment, how many of you know that what happens to us most of the time is we just stop believing? 
We stop praying. We stop asking because we stop believing. And so here's, here's a great, great lesson for us in this Christmas season. When it comes to God, never stop believing. Because what God did for Zachariah and Elizabeth in giving them a son, God can do for you. Your prayer obviously is going to be different. Whatever it is that you have asked for and, and pleaded for but maybe stopped believing would happen, I'm sure it's different from that. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's the same for you. But what he did for Zachariah and Elizabeth teaches us that we can never stop believing. Here's an interesting thing about Zechariah. Zechariah was a priest, which means he would have been very well familiar with the story of his people, the Jews. He would have been very familiar with the story of God's people, the Jews, his people. And so that means he would have known the story of Abraham and Sarah. Do you remember the story of Abraham and Sarah? Abraham was the father of the Jews. He was the father of God's people. And in the beginning, God promised him as a part of a covenant, you're going to have descendants that are as numerous as the sands of the seas and the stars of the skies. And so they waited and they waited year after year after year for God to deliver that promise. They even took matters in their own hands and tried to go around the plan of God at one point. And they just waited and waited and waited. And by the time their son Isaac was born, Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90. Zechariah would have known that story. So if he would have known that story, if he would have known that God had done a similar supernatural thing for Abraham and Sarah, why would he have stopped believing that God could do that for him and for Elizabeth? I mean, it's just because in our human frailty, sometimes when we wait and we wait and we wait as we pray and we think that our prayers are falling on deaf ears and we get disappointment after disappointment, it's easy to just stop believing. But what I want to tell you this morning is you can't ever do that. When it comes to God, never stop believing. Never. And so here's my question, a really pointed, straightforward question this morning. As you look at your life right now today, November the 29th, 2015, we're right on the beginning of the Christmas season. What is that one thing that you have stopped honestly, if you were honest, what's that one thing you've stopped believing God can do for you? What's that one thing that you've prayed for year after year after year, but after so much waiting and so much disappointment along the way, you just basically said, I'm done. What's that one thing? I want you to make out a Christmas to-do list this year. At the very top of the list, I want you to put the words to believe, and I want you to start believing again. Because you never give up when God is involved. Right down next to number two, these words. The next thing that we put on our Christmas to-do list, and we see this from our story, is we need to make sure that we obey. So put down the words to obey. That's on our to-do list, to obey. Number one, to believe. Number two, to obey. And I see obedience in both of these births. First of all, in the way that both Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph followed the law with regarding, or regarding the circumcision of their sons on the eighth day and naming both of them giving them the names that they were instructed to give them by the angel Gabriel, John and Jesus. Now, that, as, as I already told you, we looked at verse 21 of Luke chapter 2. That wasn't a big deal for Mary and Joseph. But I want to tell you, that really was kind of a big deal for Zechariah and Elizabeth. 
Now, I'm going to preface what I'm about to say by saying that I don't ever want to be guilty of reading more into the Scriptures than what is there, and I'm going to be a little bit, a little bit suggestive about this with regard to how it might have been, but just bear with me. I told you that according to custom, a firstborn son would be named after the father. And so that's what Zachariah and Elizabeth's family expected. They expected to come to the celebration of his birth and to come to the celebration of those eight straight days before his circumcision. They expected on that eighth day for them to say that the son's name is Zachariah, and they probably came prepared for it. I mean, they probably brought little onesies that had Zachariah embroidered on the booty. It's so cute. (laughs) Baby's first ornament said Zachariah. But they got to that moment, and Elizabeth spoke up. Remember, she spoke up, and she said, his name is John. Now, I guarantee, and none of us were there. We can't know this for sure, but I guarantee it's possible that this is the kind of thing that they heard after that. Well, there's nobody in our family named John. Where do you get a name like that? Who names their child John? Why do you want to turn back on your family? Why do you want to turn your back on tradition? Why do you want to break your mother's heart and name this baby John? How many of you know that when it comes to applying pressure, nobody does that better than family does? And I think it probably could have been a little bit like that. But here's what I take away from that. How many of you know that sometimes there are moments in our lives when we need to choose to obey God above everything else? How many of you know that's true? Above everything else. And there are times we need to stand up and say, you know what, this is what God is leading me to do in spite of your objections. Or this is what God is leading us to do in spite of all your objections. I hear you, I understand what you're saying, but you need to understand this. This is what God is leading me to do. And I think that's in a sense what Zechariah and Elizabeth had to do. I mean, it was quite a scene. You know, Elizabeth said his name's going to be John, and they were like, oh, my gosh, his name can't be John. And they went to, they went to uh, uh, Zachariah, and remember, he couldn't talk, you know, because he had shown doubt at the angel's announcement. He couldn't talk. And so I think it's so funny that the, the angel Gabriel said, you're not going to be able to talk. It didn't say you weren't going to be able to hear, but they're over in front of Zachariah going, <laughs> instead of just saying, what do you want to call the, ba- the boy? He wrote down on a tablet, he said, his name is John. There are times in our lives when we need to put obedience to God above everything else. Sometimes even a head of family issues. I've certainly over the years known of people who have come to the different churches that I've served, and they've come from a different kind of a church background, maybe a very strict denominational church background where everything they knew about God was tied up in tradition and everything they knew about God was tied up in ritual and and going through rituals when it came to worship. But they came to church and they discovered a whole new aspect of faith, and they discovered what it meant to have a personal relationship with God. For the first time, to really have a personal relationship with God, they discovered what it meant to be able to be a friend of God. That's your reality when you have faith in Jesus Christ, and they wanted to to do that and to move forward with that, only to have their families say things like, well, why do you want to turn your back on what what we believe? Are, Are you saying that we're wrong in all of this? And it's so difficult. I want you to know if that describes your situation. I get that. I understand that. But I also know that there are moments in life when we have to choose obedience over everything else. 
obedience to what we believe God is telling us to do over everything else. But beyond that, you know, I see obedience in this, in, in every aspect, the story of Jesus' birth. I think at Christmas time, sometimes we're tempted to think that, 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 that Christmas is kind of a tame holiday because we think of Jesus as being just the baby Jesus asleep on a bed of hay and he's got a halo, you know, an a, a illumined halo above his head. We love that Jesus, the baby Jesus at Christmas because he's safe. But I'm telling you this morning, there's nothing about Jesus coming into the world that was safe, which means Christmas isn't safe. The baby that we see as being asleep on the hay, he was born as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he comes into the world to usher in a kingdom that is in direct opposition to the current kingdom of the world, which is a kingdom of self. It's not safe. What could be more threatening than that? What can be more threatening than a Jesus, a Savior who comes in the world and says, you need to take up your cross and you need to deny yourself and you need to follow me and you need to do it every single day. You need to renew your commitment to do that every single day. You need to voluntarily lay aside your right to rule yourself, your right to make all your own decisions based on your wants and your desires and surrender that rule to me and obey me. We love to celebrate the birth of Jesus because we're not frightened by the baby in the manger, but there are not many people that are interested in obeying him as the Lord of their life. We love the baby in the manger, but the manger is meaningless if you don't look at it and see it attached to the cross. If you can look at the manger and not see the cross, you don't understand the full meaning of Christmas. It's not about the fact that Jesus was born. It was why he was born. And there's nothing safe about that. And everything about his life demands obedience. So here's another question. What's that one thing that God has been prodding you to do and leading you to do and convicting you to do? What's that one act of obedience that is before you all the time, but for whatever reason you've been unwilling to obey? What is it? What's that one thing he's been telling you you need to give up, you need to forsake? What's that one thing he's telling you you need to do? Where's that one place he's telling you you need to go? Where's that, what's that one conviction or commitment that he's saying you need to make? Right after we put the words to believe on our Christmas to-do list, we need to put the words to obey, and we need to obey whatever it is, and we need to do it now. Right down next to number three on our Christmas to-do list, do list the words to tell. We need to believe, number one. We need to obey, number two. And we need to tell, number three. And really, I see this first in the story of John's birth. If you look back, and we read this passage earlier, to Luke chapter 1, verses 64 through 66, you see it, and really primarily in verse 65. But this was, this was after... John was born, and we're talking about Zechariah here. It says in verse 64, Immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak, praising God. And here it is in verse 65. The neighbors were all filled with awe. And throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, What then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. They were talking about the birth of John because it was clear to everybody that God was involved in this. He had to have been involved in this because of the ages of Zechariah and Elizabeth. So I see it there, but here, stay with me for a minute. Primarily, when I think about this need to tell as a part of our Christmas to-do list, I really step away from the births for a moment, and I see it in the lives of those shepherds who came to see Jesus 
at his birth. Their story is told back in Luke chapter 2 and this part, verses 16 through 20. This is right after the angel appeared to them and said, you know, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And, uh, you know, the glory of the Lord shone around them. A, a, a heavenly choir showed up and it was just an incredible experience. And so afterwards they went and they found Jesus to see for themselves. They heard the news about the Savior being born. They immediately went to Bethlehem to see it. And here's the third thing that you see if you go back and read this passage. They immediately began to tell everyone they met about what they had seen and what they had heard. They spread the word. I mean, who exactly did they tell? I think they told everyone they came across. They had a personal experience with Jesus on that night, and they told everyone they met about it. And they weren't preachers. They weren't missionaries. They weren't men who had been set apart for some special work of the kingdom. They were just ordinary people just like you and me. And so I guess my third question after, you know, what is that one thing that you need to believe again? What is that one thing you need to do in response of obedience? My third question would be, who's that one person that you know in your life that you need to tell the story of Jesus to? In this Christmas season. And I, I, want you to, I, want, I want to take that question literally. I want you to get a name in your mind. I want you to picture somebody's face. Somebody that you know in your life. Maybe it's somebody in your family. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's just someone that you know in the networking of your life as you go around. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's another mom whose little girl goes to the same dance class that yours does. Or it's somebody who, whose son plays on the same basketball team that yours does. Somebody that you know. Who do you need to tell the story of Jesus to this Christmas season? And you think, well, I can do that. That's too intimidating. I, what if they ask me a question that I couldn't answer? What, what if there's a detail of Jesus' life that I can't explain? Well, then do this. Who's that one person that you just need to tell the story of what Jesus has meant to you? I mean, isn't that what the shepherds did? They, they got the announcement about Jesus being born. They went to see the reality of it, and then they told everybody what they experienced. So they had an experience with Jesus, and then they told other people about it. You've had an experience with Jesus. If you're a Christian, you've had an experience of Jesus. Who's the one person you just need to share that experience with? It can be that simple. This is a major, major problem for most believers in church because most of us have been in church so long that we don't even have a lot of contact with people who don't know about Jesus. We've kind of, over the course of time, you know, we've kind of limited our contacts to people who have the same belief and the same faith that we do, but there's still got to be somebody in your life, somebody in your family that needs to hear you tell them about your experience with Jesus how he changed your life, or how you couldn't have faced this incredible trial when you got sick, or this incredible trial when you lost a loved one, or this incredible trial when, when something came into your life out of the blue that was like a sucker punch that just leveled you and your family, and you just tell them, I couldn't, I couldn't have gotten through that without the knowledge that Jesus was always with me, and that he promised he would never leave me or forsake me. This needs to be a part of our Christmas to-do list, to believe, to obey, and to tell. Let me give you one last thing. Write down next to number four. We need to engage, and then I wrote in parentheses, in holy wonder. 
to engage. This, this is a big deal for Christmas. We need to engage in holy wonder. We see that in the story of both births. In Luke chapter 1, after John was born to Zachariah and Elizabeth, the last part of the passage that we read, and I read it again just a moment ago, was afterwards it said, everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with them. Again, they looked at Zachariah and Elizabeth and their old age and the fact that she was able to have a son, and they knew that God was a part of that, and it just created all kinds of questions, and they wondered about it. We see it in Mary in Luke chapter 2 and verse 19. After the shepherds left, it says, but Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Every year at Christmas, we need to have a sense of wonder. Now, that might be really difficult for some of you. I can just see some of you guys, you're engineers, you analytical thinking guys, you know, you're like, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. But the Christmas story can be reduced to this truth. God became a man. How can you consider that and not have your mind filled with wonder that the very God of the universe willingly chose to clothe himself with flesh and step into humanity and begin like a baby in a manger? How can that not just blow your mind on some level that God would do that so that he could save us? so that we could have a relationship with him. And so I'm telling you, in the midst of all the busyness and all the hectic life that comes along with Christmas, we need to find a way to pause and engage in a sense of holy wonder. I actually wrote down some suggestions for you that might help you do this. And, I, and you're smarter than I am. You probably can come up with some better ones. But here's three of them real quickly, and I like the first one the best. I think every one of us, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. I make a commitment to do this in my life. Every one of us, it's November the 29th, December 1st is Tuesday. Every one of us, from December the 1st all the way through December 25th, should get up every morning, and at some point in the day, maybe first thing in the morning or at some point in the day, we should commit to reading these three passages of Scripture every day for 25 days. Number one, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Now, John, this is the prologue to John's gospel that talks about the reality of the incarnation. The incarnation is a word that we use to describe God becoming a man. It doesn't tell the story of Jesus' birth like Luke chapter 2 or even Matthew chapter 1. It tells about the reality of the incarnation. It begins with the words, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And it talks about Jesus. It talks about how he came to his own, and his own didn't receive him. It talks about how he was light in the world. It talks about how he brought grace and truth. It talks about all these things. It describes to us the incredible wonder of the incarnation. Then right after that, we should turn in our Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, and we should read verses 5 through 11, which is John's description of what Jesus came into the world to do. You remember that passage? It begins in verse 5. Each of you should have the same attitude of Christ Jesus. That's how it begins. And it talks about Jesus, says about him who, 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 while being in nature of God... The word that he uses there for nature is morphe, which is the outward manifestation of the inward reality. Who being in very nature God, talks about Jesus, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And so he basically gave it up and took the appearance of a man as a servant, was obedient to death on the cross. Incredible passage of Scripture. And then we should follow that up by turning to Luke chapter 2, 
and reading verses 1 through 20, which is just Luke's story of Christmas. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. And do that every day for 25 days. And I can't help but believe that that could cause us, as we read those verses, and those verses became a part of our minds, to just have a sense of wonder about what happened at that first Christmas. By the way, if you do that for 25 days consecutively, you're going to know those passages at the end of those 25 days because let me tell you something. This is, this is, people ask me this question all the time. You know how you know the Bible? You know how you learn the Bible? You read it repetitively. It's not rocket science. That's the only real way. that Unless you're just somebody who has really gifted and you have total recall, you can just read it once and you remember it completely. You read it repetitively. That's how you learn it. Another thing is this. Maybe you've got small kids at home, and maybe in your decorating for Christmas, you have a nativity scene or multiple nativity scenes. One suggestion might be is that you take that nativity scene, and rather than just putting it all out at once, you take it and you wrap up every single piece of the nativity scene except the, the stable itself, the setting itself. And you, you choose a certain number of days. If you've got 10 pieces of the nativity scene, 10 days before Christmas with your children, you unwrap each day one piece, and you talk about the meaning of that piece in the Christmas story, whether it's the shepherd or whether it's a wise man or whether it's an angel or whether it's Joseph or Mary, and on the last day, it's Jesus. And you make that a significant part of your day for however many days that is. Something your kids will always remember. Maybe it could be as simple as this. Every single moment from December, from right now through December 25th that you feel any level of stress associated with the busyness of the holiday... Any level of pressure related to the expectation of what you need to do or what you need to provide, you just make an agreement with yourself that the moment, the second you feel that stress or that pressure, you're going to step away, you're going to withdraw. You might not even be able to do it physically, but on some level, inside where it matters, you're going to step away and withdraw, and you're going to pray. God, help me to remember what this is all about. Now, as I said, you might be able to come up with other things that would be even better than those, but those are just some suggestions. I don't know what you do. All I know is that the Christmas story, the Christmas holiday, is based on this incredible miracle of God becoming a man. And if you can't find a sense of wonder in that, then you've got bigger problems than any problems that we've talked about today. All right, there it is. That's the Christmas to-do list. To believe, to obey, to tell, and to engage in some sense of wonder. And I really think that if we can find a way to do that, then this can be an incredible Christmas. And so my encouragement is to do it. Don't just, don't just think, I came to church this weekend, I put in my time, I did my duty, or I went through the motions, whatever it might be. Do it. I'm giving you an assignment. I'm giving you something to take with you when you walk out the door.